The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Most of us spend a good chunk of our lives interacting with people and organizations, which are made up of people, who do not believe what we believe about God, about his gospel of grace delivered to us in Christ crucified. We're we're on different pages. Us and most of the world around us, we believe, and most others don't. They are unbelievers, which is not meant to be a slam, it's just an honest description. And if that's you this morning, as I'm using that phrase, I'm not trying to insult you, I'm just saying there's a group of people who believe the gospel given to us in the scriptures and some who don't, and believe or unbeliever, those are the terms. So for us in the church, believers, this is our reality. We, We live in a world that has many around us unbelievers. A world is full of and, in fact, dominated by people who disagree with us, think differently than we do. And there are, for us, many reasons to just go along with the flow. To seek and seek out every opportunity to be tightly woven and to stay tightly woven into the fabric of life that is a fabric of unbelief. There's a lot to gain from being in, from being accepted and embraced, and there's a lot to be lost, being out, to being on the outside, especially if you were in and then had to step out and withdraw in some way and stand faithful to God in some certain situation. That's what we're called to, though. What are you to do? We're called to, how can you possibly do it? It's an important question for Christians in the world, and increasingly, I think, in the United States. It's been less of an issue in the, in the past, but it's becoming more an issue for us, and I think will be increasingly an issue in the coming days. We who are in this world and in this country, but not allowed to be of it, Because we are not allowed to compromise our total loyalty to Christ and our singular union with him. It's a tension, though, in the world and not of it. And that's the tension that our passage this morning is going to address. So let me read it here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 through the first verse in chapter 7. I'm going to read this passage and then draw out from it two observations, the first one being much longer than the second. Here's the passage, beginning of verse 14. Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 6. Two observations, here's the first. In union with Christ, we cannot be in union with the world. In union with Christ, we cannot be in union with the unbelieving world. Verse 14 is a relatively well-known command. Perhaps you've heard it referenced as a prohibition related to marriage. And, spoiler alert, that's an accurate application of this passage. It does relate to marriage. But that's just an application, only one. It's actually much larger than that. So we need to set aside marriage for a second, if that's kind of where your mind's going. Set that aside and we need to look at the whole thing. Last week in verses 1 to 13 of this chapter, Paul commanded the church not to receive the grace of God in vain. That was verse 1. Not to be a Christian who wastes God's saving grace, his work in our lives, but instead be a Christian who leans into that and, and sees in that grace a great love that he's had for us. And then from that is motivated by that love to live this life as a new creation, a new life lived for the Lord and not for self. And as part of that exhortation, then Paul laid out his own life for us, leading up to then verses 11 to 13, right at the end of the passage, a plea, a plea to Christians, to those there in the church who opened their hearts to him, to, to open to him and to receive him in love, not just because Paul was lonely or something, but because to receive, to open your heart and receive Paul is to receive Paul's teaching and is to receive the God who sent Paul and that teaching. So he's ending there, literally, at the end, widen your hearts, you guys, plural, y'all. That's Paul's ending, widen your hearts, you guys, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Very next verse. Widen your hearts, not to unbelievers. Widen your hearts and receive in and unite with me and with the God who sent me. That's the flow here. That's what we are to be yoked to. To be yoked is to be closely tied to or teamed up with. A yoke was a, a farm implement that put two animals side by side and joined them together intimately in a team such that they would then work together about the same job in the same way, in the same direction, living life and working in union with one another. And we are to be yoked, but to the Lord, not to an unbeliever. That's the general principle here, which is going to have very wide application, as I said, but we'll understand it better if we first see the specific situations. So we've got to kind of dive into this to see the situation that that Paul's dealing with for them there in Corinth. What follows this basic principle is a series of five rhetorical questions, all of which have the obvious implied answer, none, that's impossible. Now, when we, in our common speech, when we rattle off a list of questions like this, the, the 
The last one's always the punchline. It's always the point. If I say, who's a fan of losers? Who likes to pin their hopes on a team that constantly disappoints? Who roots for the Chicago Cubs? <laughs> right? The punchline is the last one. You realize it's a Cubs joke, and yeah, they did win the World Series, but they've returned to form, and they are again my lovable losers. And the first statements kind of flesh that out, but the punchline is the last one. So we look at this series of five questions, and we're looking for the punchline at the end, but realizing all along that the statements coming to it are going to flesh it out and explain why that's funny, or in this case, why that's so serious. It begins with, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What partnership is there between what's right according to God's law and what's contrary to God's law? None. That's impossible. It's a contradiction. Lawless lawfulness? It's ridiculous. Exactly. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. They're opposites. Or what accord has Christ with Belial, another word for Satan? None whatsoever. The second person of the triune God and the prince of demons are not friends. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Oh, I think we're maybe getting somewhere now. As you hear that, the pattern so far implies the answer is supposed to be dead obvious. But Christians reading this back then, maybe even today, kind of get a little uneasy as, as we squirm and say, uh, none, there is no shared portion between the believer and unbeliever because what God, the portion that God has put onto the believer's plate is blessing and grace and endless love and the portion that he's put onto the unbeliever's plate is in the end judgment and wrath and those are two different portions. Then lastly, the final punchline, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is the issue. So we've got to understand the issue in that context. In our Western context, especially today, many of us are not really accustomed to seeing the literal, tangible worship of idols. It, it does happen in our world. It happens in the United States. It happens all over the globe. But we don't often, many of us, at least in the Western context, see the literal worship of idols. And so we, we hear avoid idols and we kind of run to metaphorical idols, idols of the heart. So things that we worship and, and bow down to and give our lives to and follow too passionately. So sports are an idol, sex is an idol, money is an idol, those, those kinds of things. And while all that is true and important, that's just not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about something much more literal, literal idolatry, as happens in the world today and certainly back then. Think for a second about maybe Acts chapter 16 with its depiction of Athens when Paul arrived in Athens and saw Everywhere, a city full of shrines and altars and temples to an endless array of gods and goddesses. Or maybe remember Acts 19 and the riot that developed in Ephesus. Paul's already mentioned that here in this book. But what caused the riot in Ephesus? Paul's teaching, the gospel, 
threatened the local goddess Artemis. And all the silversmiths who made the silver shrines and the trinkets that were attached to that. And that's what triggered this problem. He was coming against the city's god, goddess. Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and every city throughout all the ancient world deeply influenced by the gods. They each had their respective groups of followers and purposes, often circling around a person's stage in life or their, an illness or a need, and particularly prominent were the gods and the groups of followers that circled around jobs or professions or occupations. Each job had a god, and those who did that job, they, they gathered around that god, and, and the god that they worshipped supposedly gave them protection and gave them a prosperous work and guidance and wisdom and skill in their work. And the workers they gathered around, they formed professional guilds that kind of served as a combination worship center and fellowship brotherhood and entertainment venue. All their, their feasts and their meals Ceremonies where the faithful would offer up prayers and sacrifices and even themselves intimately as they had sex with the official temple prostitutes as a way of joining themselves, uniting themselves to the God or goddess. That was the fabric of life. That idolatrous system, a system of idolatry, was the fabric of life in the ancient city. Why was that attractive? Why was it such a problem that Paul had to speak to it frequently in 1 Corinthians and then again here in 2 Corinthians? What's the draw? Well, you think about that, the being the fabric of life. It was attractive and tempting because of what you got from it, from being in. What you would lose from being out, especially if you used to be in and then you had to very noticeably step out what you would lose. It was your life, your social and financial work life, your stability and security in a natural sense and in a supernatural sense. The, the demons that are behind all these gods, demons are real. And so there would be a, a clear connection of supernatural influence on life that you would get from being in. They didn't make all this up. It, demons are real. So all of that you would, you would find for you when you were in the temple of the goddess, bowing down before her idol with all the other movers and shakers of your field and of your community and with your friends and with your neighbors. That's why it's attractive, because of what it gets you. And you can imagine what it would cost you to step out of that fabric. Then you become a Christian. You become a Christian. And God says to you, what agreement has the temple of God with all of that? I live in you. And I walk in your midst. This is the quote from Verse 16, I'm your God and you are my people. And what agreement is there between you, between me in you and those idols? And what accord is there 
between Christ in you and Satan in that and the demon behind them? What, what connection is there? The light in you and the darkness, the righteousness in you and the lawlessness there. What kind of partnership is there between that? None. That's impossible. So don't be yoked to that. Verse 17, go out from their midst and be separate from them. That whole place, that whole scene, unclean. Step away from it because not only is it dishonoring to God, but because, chapter 7, verse 1, you see the goal and then flip it around, the, the negative, it defiles your body and your spirit and it holds you back. It blocks you from perfecting holiness. It It limits you. It holds you away from the growth into maturity, into the living of the new creation life that you were saved for. It would be to squander the grace of God. Don't waste that. Don't receive it in vain. We are a heart and mind sponge. And we soak up whatever water we sit in. You put us out in the rain, you, you put us in the bathroom next to the toilet or under the kitchen sink or maybe on the kitchen sink. We soak up whatever water's there. And if you take a sponge from the bathroom, you don't put it on the kitchen sink. You keep them separate because of what water soaks up into them. And if you go into one room, you will soak up what's there. You will, and it will defile you. It will hold you back and hinder you from that which you're actually about and from that which is actually good and that for which the Lord actually made you and saved you. Holiness. Christ-likeness. We don't want to squander that grace. We want to grow up into what God made us to be and will judge us with regards to. Notice the mention of the fear of God at the end. He's serious about this. He's not asking. It's a command. 14, 17, verse 1, beginning, middle, end. Avoid tying yourself to and creating allegiance with the people and systems of the world around you, the world you are in but are not allowed to be of. Think of another way you could use the words from 14, 15, 16. We cannot be yoked with the people of the world. We cannot be in partnership with what is contrary to God's law. We cannot try to live in fellowship with darkness. We cannot live in agreement with what is demonic and at its core anti-Christ and we share no portion with unbelievers. which of course means you certainly can't marry one. Obviously. And no, someone who seems nice and spiritual and is asking lots of good questions, that's not good enough. While he is not a Christian, he is still not a Christian. So step away. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been reconciled to God in Christ. Don't unite yourself to one who isn't and hasn't been. 
At the deepest level, you are on completely different pages, have different destinies, and serve completely different gods. Which is not to say, remember 1 Corinthians 7, that if you are married to an unbeliever, this is a command to divorce that one. No, it's not. This is saying don't marry such a one. Different if you're already married. Don't get into the situation in the first place. Step away from it. And it's worth underlining this particular application because it is challenging for many, and I think it is challenging especially when we live and we'll increasingly find ourselves in an environment where there are fewer options. And so the temptation to compromise is higher, stronger. Nice guys who are moral and cute. Talk about Jesus, okay. No. Do not be yoked to an unbeliever. So this is definitely applicable to marriage. But by no means is it only or even primarily about marriage. That's not the main point. It speaks to every defilement in verse 1, every defilement of body and spirit, every union that may contaminate or may defile this temple in which God dwells. Every situation. And for me, like maybe you write this down or underline this, for me, I try to like, this is, this is complicated, I think, and I'm trying to like think into this. This is the way that for me is most helpful to think about it. For me, I put it like this. I drop away the metaphors of defilement and temple, and I put it like this. God, through Paul, is putting his finger on the natural pull that we feel to do whatever it takes to ally ourselves with people even those who don't follow Christ. To ally ourselves with them and their systems in order to protect or benefit ourselves. Let me say it again differently. The issue is one of being tempted to compromise faithfulness to Christ so as to join the world for self-benefit. That's how I... I write this down. That's how I kind of get the, the main idea of this, this whole section once I've moved past the marriage one. It's generally speaking, I'm going to compromise my faithfulness to Christ to join up in some way, tie myself to the world for my benefit. That's what the idolatry system in Corinth would have gotten the Christians there. Some sort of a benefit from being united, allied. That's what's tempting. I'm going to go with the flow and be loyal and give allegiance to these people and do the things they do with them and like them. I know it's lawless and it's dark and it's rooted in unbelief, but it's going to give me a whole bunch of worldly benefit. It's going to give me friends and influence and power and money and protection and health and all the things I want and enjoy. And to walk away from that would be painful. So I'm not going to. I'm going to try to thread the needle and do both. This may touch your business relationships, partnerships, deals, behaviors. It may touch your politics and your political alliances. It may touch your desire for deep friendships, every defilement of all sorts. So I don't know exactly what it is for you, but what is it for you? What tempts you 
again, here's the way I put it, to compromise your faithfulness to Christ so as to join in more closely with non-Christians for your benefit. I think that's a good way of putting it. And putting it like that also clarifies the misapplication of this. Because if, if, one, if we're on a road here and one ditch is I'm joined to and tied up too tightly with the world, the other ditch is I have nothing to do with any other people, non-believers, the world at all whatsoever. And people have applied this verse mistakenly like that. But when I put it like a lie with non-Christians for your benefit, oh, there's something that we clarify there. Because we do want to join closely with those who are not Christians for their benefit. To bless and help them, to love them. Especially so that they can sense and then come to know and understand the love of God in Christ. We are commanded to love neighbor, not avoid neighbor. Love neighbor and do good to those around us and to lay aside our own rights and desires to bless and love others. Not in a way, of course, not in a way that compromises who we are and not in a way that puts Christ in us in some sort of an impossible tension or in the presence of sin bowing down to some other idol. Not in a way that defiles us and works against our growth in Christ's likeness. But we can and do and must engage with the society around us in sacrificial love for the good of the world. So we should be excellent citizens and skillful and delightful co-workers and marvelous loving neighbors and friends. But as we are lovers of others and lovers of the city in which we dwell, we take care to cleanse ourselves from any sort of a compromise that would get us involved in unclean defiling of self and would limit our pursuit of Christ. That's a tricky line. Get a couple of ditches there, and maybe the road's not quite so wide. There's, some, there's, a, there's a spot in the middle that's perhaps a little hard to find. So what, what would it be for you? I, I don't know, but I, I kind of put it like this. This is helpful again for me. Am I compromising in a way that compromises and displeases Christ in order to please others for my benefit? Step away. That's a hard thing to embrace. How are we going to do that? Well, God aims to help us with that, and that's the second observation. Here's the second point. Singular faithfulness to God is built on his faithful promises to us. Singular faithfulness to God is built on his faithful promises to us. So we just note the command that runs through the passage, beginning, middle, and end. But notice this, there's a, there's a dynamic that is everywhere at work in the Bible, and here it is on crystal clear, full display. The way God means to help us obey his commands. 
chapter one, chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these commands, people. No, not what it says. Since we have these promises, beloved. That maybe is unexpected because as we're reading through this, the thing that's kind of most dominant is, is kind of the way I was just presenting the first point. It's what we aren't supposed to do and how we need to be separate from. And, and there's, there's a lot of push from God towards us. So this is what we are to be like. And we feel like when he comes to the conclusion, since that it should be about the commands, but it's not. He points out the promises. Since we have these promises, beloved, then the command. Therefore, let us strive to cleanse ourselves, etc. God promises before he commands and before we obey. This is constant in the scriptures. It's, it's how God is. It's how he works with us. God expects always his kind promises, which are, if you think about what a promise is, a promise is about something that's in the future. But the only reason that it means anything is that it's built on something in the past. That's the, the one who issues the promise believes, at least, that this means something, what I'm saying about the future, because of what I've been like in the past, and you can trust me when I promise. Well, God expects his kind promises to give us the reasons that we need to follow him and to give us the counter-arguments to the arguments that the world's throwing up in our face. The offers coming from other people. Here's reason to believe that God is good, that God is being good to us, and that God will be good to us tomorrow. We are his beloved. You are his beloved. Not even his subject, his citizen, not even just like a Christian Something technical like that, this is tender and dear, beloved. Even when you are in sin and even when you are being so strongly tempted that he's compelled to speak a correcting command like this, these folks are waffling. The command comes because they're waffling. Even then, Beloved. That's how God sees you. He's, because he sees you in Christ, who is his beloved. He can't ever see you otherwise. You are his beloved. And he holds out promise to you because it is his resolved determination always and only to do good to his beloved. To you. There's promises here. Let's look at these promises. We're going to have to think through this carefully to see the, the great help that's offered here. This is going to be relatively quick, but careful. 16, 17, and 18 are a stitched together collection of quotes. It probably is printed in your Bible in a way that reveals it as a quotation. But it's not a single quotation. It's from a bunch of different places. All through the Old Testament. Things that he's reminding them of, they already know. He's reminding us of, we already know. 
they kind of capture the, in a couple of short verses, they kind of capture the history of God's dealing with his people. Verse 16, three promises first. I will dwell among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Originally spoken through Moses. Right after the people came out from Egypt, God promised one day, I'm going to do this. Promised one day I will dwell among them. Something more permanent than my wandering with them in the desert. We're going to settle in a place. And I will be in them and among them and with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Like happened finally in the Jerusalem temple. Sort of. Right? You got to say sort of, at the end of that. Because we, we know, they knew, we, we all know the, the history of that. Yes, God came into the temple and dwelt in their midst and walked with them, sort of, and they were his people and he was their God. But the whole temple thing was designed to say, you can come close, but you can't come all the way. And actually, it's about me in this building more than it's me and you. So this is better than the tent and better than the desert, but it's not really the end, is it? And then we know they didn't actually change them. And they descended into sin and walked away from God, and so then next came the exile. Sent away to Babylon. And verse 17 is spoken to the exiles there living among the unbelieving, idolatrous people in Babylon. When God spoke through the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, has something similar to this too, calling the people out from Babylon, come back, come out from there, leave on a second exodus out of captivity, come back to me and I promise I will welcome you with open arms and I will be not just a God, I'll be father to you and you'll be not just my people but my sons and my daughters. Like happened when they came back singing with delight and came back to Jerusalem, right? Sort of, yeah. Better and different, but not enough. Because if we know the history, we know they were right back into it again pretty, pretty quickly after they came back from the exile. Yes, welcomed back, and yes, God and them tied up, but oh man, the thing fell apart again because it's all pointing towards something else, isn't it? You know the history. This is just a reminder, you know the history. It's all pointing towards something else, something now the new covenant, one of Paul's main themes. The new covenant, with the glory that far surpasses that of the old, with the new covenant that works and that is final. A new covenant in which God finally, as he said, I will finally make this work. I will actually live, not in a building, and invite you to come. I'll live inside of you. And I'll walk with you. Where you go, I will be right with you. And you will be my people. In fact, you will be my sons and my daughters. My children, my kids. And you'll call me dad. Not just Lord. Lord. 
There's a time coming, he says, when I will walk with you and I will, I will live in you by my outpoured spirit and I will father you, my beloved children, by the power of my spirit in you and among you and with you. And we look at that and say, that happened? That is happening. And that will happen. It's promise fulfilled, which is what gives us reason to believe that it's actually trustworthy in the future. The faithfulness of God to have accomplished centuries worth of, of plan to bring it to pass that the new covenant would be initiated and sustained. Marvelous. And that's what gives us reason to say, I think you'll do that tomorrow too. I'm going to trust that. I think you'll be that for me tomorrow also. I'm going to trust that. So, in other words, we look at this section here, and what we should see is two things. The faithfulness of God across a long, long time. That his promises are true of us. And we then also should say, and that means they are true promises for us. They are true of us, and they are true for us. Because in promising, I will be a father to you. I will welcome you. You shall be my sons and daughters. He does not mean at a moment in time, once settled, only then. He means I birth you, and you are my kids. I father you forever, son, daughter, I'm going to carry you in my arms. And I'm going to feed you and clothe you and protect you and commune with you and nurture you and listen to you and love you everlastingly, widely, deeply, faithfully. I've been working to do that for a real long time. I accomplished that plan and I'm going to carry it out all the way to the end. How can I not? You are my beloved. And so whatever you think you might gain from teaming up with my enemies. You won't gain anything there like you will gain in my arms. You see the promising nature in this. It is not. Whatever you think, it is not. Whatever you think you will gain from teaming up with my enemies, don't you dare or else. That is not what he says. He fights it with a promise. Whatever you think you will gain from teaming up with my enemies, I promise you it won't be anything like what you will see in these arms. Come to me if you are weary and heavy laden and worried about your life and tempted to go into the world. Come here and find in me a father, a dad. I will stick with you. I will team up with you. Yoked to me, you will find a burden that is easy and light. You will find rest for your souls. That's why I gave you Christ and why I gave up Christ for you. You are in him and so you are mine. And my love for Christ is my love for you. It's not going anywhere. I gave you him and I'll give you everything else you need that'll destroy, that'll overwhelm, that'll overpower, that'll, that'll cause to sink any offer that they might extend. I'll be honest with you, you may end up with nothing in the world. 
but you will possess everything, says your father to you. You may end up dead flat broke while you're making many rich. Could be. You may die, but I promise you, you'll live. You may be a total outcast, unknown, but I'll know you. Come to me, and I promise, I promise, I promise, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters of mine, full, alive, possessing everything. I promise. Why should you believe him? Well, again, look back. That's why he gave up Christ for you. He worked all this out to bring it to this point, to create this reality. Will he not also, in the future, give you everything you need along with Christ? That's Paul's argument in Romans. It's Paul's argument here. It's the argument of the Bible, which is why God drives obedience with promise. The key to faithful unity with God against all temptations and challenges is to see the faithfulness of God in his promises first to us and to see his love for us then we love. That's how God works. So behold your gracious and promising and loving God, Christian. And live in the world with him and for him, not of the world, in Christ for him. Let me pray. Father, help us please because there's a lot of difficulty here for us. There is maybe complexity in sorting out where these temptations apply to us in life and then there is difficulty in believing your promises in the face of what we can see with our eyes. Help us to be a people who live by faith and not by sight. Give us help. Father us in that way. Thank you for your gracious commitment of yourself to us first. Help us to see that and rest in it and believe it. Grow us up, please. And use us as instruments in your hands to bless and love the world around us in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.